Well, okay, let's come back to the book of Acts, where we have uh, gotten a good start. We are now this morning arriving at Acts chapter 6, and uh, we're just going to take a look at the beginning of this chapter today. But I want to take you back to something we saw when we began our study of the book of Acts, when we were introducing it, that this book records the historical unfolding of crucial transitions. It records a period of transition, about 30 years long, a little bit more than that, maybe. And these transitions are very important in the uh, development of the, the redemptive program of God. First is the transition from the Gospels to the Epistles. There's a reason why the book of Acts sits between the four Gospels and the the, the rest of the New Testament. The church was predicted by Jesus in Acts, or sorry, in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, in Acts, it is beginning to be unfolded, but it's fully established in the epistles. But we have the beginning of it here. We saw the first word, first use of the word church in Acts chapter 3. So we know the church is now a thing. But the full doctrine of the church as the body of Christ comprised of Jews and Gentiles and there being this plan then for Israel uh, and all the promises God is going to fulfill to them, like we're reading in Romans 9, 10, and 11, um, that's primarily explained in the letters of Paul. Our passage today shows a small step in that process of that transition. There's also... The big one, the transition from Judaism to Christianity, to use the terminology of, Galatians, of Colossians chapter 2 and of Hebrews 8, 9, and 10, the shadow give way, gives way to the reality. There's also the transition from the Mosaic law being that which, um, which uh, governs worship to the church age as a whole. The purpose of the law of Moses was to lead people to faith in Christ. Galatians 3, 24 and 25. The law is a tutor to lead us to the Savior. The law actually separated Jews from Gentiles culturally, and so it required time and teaching and effort and patience to bring Jews and Gentiles together in one body, the church. Now, of course, the foundation of that is being transformed by Christ. Then there's the transition from the ministry of Christ to the ministry of His agents. The New Testament opens with the Gospels. The central uh, character, of course, is Jesus Christ. He Himself ministers and teaches in the Gospels. The book of Acts records the transition from his own ministry to the ministry of the apostles and those who followed the apostles. And remember how Jesus, at a couple of times, sent the twelve out in teams of two? And then he sent seventy out in teams of two? He was laying the groundwork for this transition from him to his agents. And again, Acts is the bridge. Then there's the transition from Israel as the center of the activity of God to the entire world. 
And today we're going to begin to major on part of that transition from Judaism to Christianity and from Israel to the church. Jesus announced the beginning of the new covenant when he instituted the Lord's Supper celebration to replace the Passover celebration. Remember that night before he went to the cross? And he changed the ritual and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The very next day on the cross, as he died giving his blood, uh, my blood is a metonym for giving his life. As he gave his life, then he cried out from the cross, it is finished. And at that point, the sacrifice was complete. He had borne the sins. He had, received, he had incurred the wrath of God. And God, at that moment, remember, dramatically ripped the veil in two from top to bottom that, that prevented anyone from accessing the Holy of Holies to symbolize that now anyone could come into the presence of God. So the new covenant was begun. And from that day on, all that went on in the temple was like, and I thought of a metaphor today, or this, this week, I'm going to invent this term. The temple, from the time of the death and resurrection of Christ until its destruction, was one giant spiritual lame duck session. See, the new covenant has arrived. The Savior has come. The gospel, by the time we get to Acts 6, is rampaging through Jerusalem. But the unique idea of the church is just beginning to take shape. So we're going to see the infant church take its first steps. Now, Marcia and I had a perfect living illustration a couple of weeks ago. We got to meet our first granddaughter. She is the cutest baby that has been born, at least in this millennium. She is absolutely adorable. I want to go back and see her uh, again and again. But you know what? She's not good for much. <laughs> she doesn't do chores. She won't wash dishes. Her, her math is abominable. Her pronunciation is non-existent. Well, you don't expect an infant to be mature, right? Well, we're talking about the infant church here, and we're going to see, if you will, a couple of baby steps, maybe one significant baby step. And this passage is full of many applications to us. So I'm going to take my time, go slowly, get started, make a case for something else today, uh, or something uh, ancillary to this today, and then we'll wrap it up next time we come back to this uh, chapter. So before we dive into the specifics of the chapter, I'd like you to take a step back with me and view a big picture of the very early development of the church. Before spiritual construction on the church began, Jesus had to die, rise again, and ascend to the Father. Then He had to fulfill His promise to send the Holy Spirit which is recorded in Acts chapter 2. And he said, and when that happens, oh, you're going to receive power and you're going to be my witnesses, starting in Jerusalem and Judea, which we're seeing now, and then to Samaria, coming soon in a chapter near you in the book of Acts, and then to the remotest parts of the world, to the, to the Gentiles. So, some miracles accompanied 
the arrival of the Holy Spirit when it came in chapter 2. And then there was that sermon by Peter that led to the repentance and the baptism of 3,000 people. Acts chapter 2, verse 41. So then, that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Just six verses later, 247, we are told, the Lord was adding to the number day by day those who were being saved. Chapter 4, verse 4, a little interlude of some persecution of Peter and John in chapter 3. Then in chapter 4, verse 4, the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And in that comment, the word men isn't the word for people, it's the word for males. So that doesn't include women and children. This thing's getting big. And then chapter 5, verse 14, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. Now, sneak preview, in the passage that we're coming to today, you're going to see two more statements like that. Verse 1 of chapter 6, now at this time the disciples were increasing in number. A complaint arose among the part, on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. We'll get to that last part in a minute. It's still multiplying. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the Lord. Now, that's pretty cool. We'll talk about that, too. Now, I cite all that to begin to build a case to address a, uh, a modern idea that needs to be refuted. It's an idea that's not healthy for local churches. And I have friends in the ministry who actually believe this, but it's not good. It's the belief that the idea of church membership is unbiblical. And it's not right, therefore, to ask people to become designated, recognized as members of a local church. Now, okay, I will grant there is no verse that says you must go through a process to become a member of your local church. Sign on the dotted line or whatever it might be. But you know, there's also no verse that says to brush your teeth or to change the oil in your car or to register for the draft or that you need a driver's license. The lack of a specific verse is a terribly weak argument against church membership. You see, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are a member of your church. The, the Greek word that's translated member describes a part of the body. We, we speak of dismembership, which I highly recommend against. It means losing a piece of your body, right? So um, we are as connected spiritually with one another in Christ as the parts of your body are connected to the whole. And we need to act in conjunction with and in harmony with one another, just like your body has to work together, or it's crippled, or sick, or hampered from functioning as it should. There is not one part of your physical body that functions better on its own. 
I'll strengthen that. There's not one, of your party, one part of your body that can function on its own. It, it, it's a whole. Now, there are statements like this. Romans chapter 12, verse 5. So we who are many, so there are many individuals in this, just like there's many parts of your physical body. We are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There's a collective there and there's an individual there. We collectively are the body. We are individually connected to one another. There's also Ephesians 4.25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We belong to one another. We are spiritually connected. It says it twice in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 20 and verse 27. But now there are many members, but one body. Verse 27. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Now, I cited all those passages about the numerical growth of the church to help you observe that from the beginning, the apostles, the Christians in general, kept track of numbers of people. They were so closely involved with one another that they knew when, they were, when there were needs, what the needs were, and they responded individually and collectively and sacrificially to meet those needs. That required record-keeping in addition to involvement. We know in chapter 2 that uh, where we heard that they knew all the distinct languages which were spoken by the people who had come from elsewhere to Jerusalem for Pentecost. That required some record-keeping as well. Uh, they knew about one another in great detail. Uh, we're going to see in, in chapter 6 when priests repented, they were the ones that were persecuting him in chapter 5, and they came to faith, they knew that. They knew and they kept track of which ones of them were Greek speakers and which, one of them, which ones of them were Aramaic speakers. Oh, and they knew the marital status of people. They knew which ones were widows. And they took care of them daily. There was a lot of caring and a lot of record keeping required in order to do that. Now, I won't take you there right now, but you can see later in new, other New Testament books that when believers moved or traveled from one location to another, they were recommended by name and by letters sent between churches. And that, um, that thing that's mentioned just a few times in the New Testament took root. That, that practice became well documented in the years um, following the close of the New Testament. So when somebody says, why would you want to have church membership? That's not in the Bible. I would prefer to ask a different question. I would prefer to ask, why would anyone who has been transformed by Jesus Christ not want to be as committed as possible to His work and the building of his church. Why would any Christian want to avoid being named among the ones who belong to Jesus? If you're in Christ, that's the most important thing about you. 
wouldn't you want it to be shown and stated as, as commonly as possible to be part of your testimony? Now, in the Bible, as soon as a person was publicly identified with Jesus Christ, primarily by baptism, which followed repentance and conversion, that person was immediately known to the other Christians, was counted in the numbers, and was expected to be visibly identified with the local church. Now, it was kind of easy in the first chapters of Acts because, um, you know, the, the churches you had a choice of were Jerusalem or you weren't a Christian. There was only one. Life was easier to manage in that way. But the way members of the local church um, get identified does vary in different cultures, and I'll grant that. The most basic system probably practiced by the most believers in the world. It is the system that I've come to be familiar with through our partnership with, um, with, with our Russian friends. A person hears the gospel. That person repents and declares his or her faith in Christ. Say, I trust Christ. Next opportunity, they are brought to church, brought up in front of the church where they are named, welcomed, and prayed for, and then they are taken under the wings of the, uh, the church leadership, and they uh, do some instruction in the basics of sound doctrine. Most people there are coming out of the, the cult of Russian Orthodoxy, and so there's quite a bit to make sure that they understand what the words actually mean. And when the, when the elders sign off on their preparation, then they are baptized. And that's a big day. That's a big celebration. And once the people are baptized, then they are considered members of the church and they are allowed to partake in the communion service. They don't allow it until the end of that process. Now, that's a different cultural thing, different than the way... um, than the way we do it. But Baptism Day is also always Communion Day. You go to wherever the baptism is and you come to the church and you have a service and, uh, and you come around the Lord's table. And, and I would say this, often, not only in Russia, many places in the world, that process comes at the cost of being ostracized from your family. But in their world, there is generally a maximum of Well, one church in any town or village, one gospel-preaching church. So there's no place to hide if you are committed to Jesus Christ. One of the times that I was over there and got to be around for a a baptism service, I heard um, uh, that, you know, we're all excited they're going to baptize eight people tomorrow. We're really excited about this. And then I came to the service and, you know... uh, all my fingers are intact. I can count to eight and beyond. And there were only seven who were baptized. And I said, oh, no, did somebody drop out? Is somebody sick? And they said, well, uh, no, we, have, we, we baptized Sergei way early this morning at a different location because of the threats on the lives of the people who would baptize him from his family. Okay? We've got it pretty easy, folks. All right? Now, there are some denominations that 
have uh, very precisely described procedures for becoming a member of their local congregations, different ways of handling the children of believers. Um, There's uh, processes in some places for transferring from one place to another, for ordination uh, involving different churches. A a lot of those things get detailed, and that's okay. That's fine. But the idea that you can belong to Jesus Christ and not be visibly, overtly, regularly, conspicuously committed to a local church, that idea is foreign to church history. Only in very recent history, and primarily in the United States where we value our individuality and our individual freedoms and our personal rights, only in these very latter days have people even tried to separate salvation from being identified with the church. The two go hand in hand. Now let's be clear, don't fall off the other side of this horse now that I got you on. You can't be saved by joining a church any more than you can become a, a, an Audi by sleeping in your garage overnight. That's not how it works. You must hear the gospel, understand that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Then, convicted of your sins, and you turn away from your sin, and you turn to Christ, and you put your faith in Him and Him alone for salvation. Then you're born again. And when you are born again, you are supernaturally made alive in Christ and placed into the body of Christ which is the church where we are all members of one another. Then it becomes your responsibility and your privilege and your humble duty to do everything you can to live out your involvement with other Christians in the local church. Now, we are, sounds like I'm going to argue against everything I just said, we are an independent Bible church. Um, Well, that means we don't have a denominational formula, denominational affiliation, the way I like to describe it. When you're independent, you can make your friends wherever you want to. And you're not hindered by any of those barriers as well. And we do cooperate with lots and lots of people in in, in lots of lots of ministries. But we do the membership thing solely on the basis, not of a prescription from headquarters, but we do it on the testimony of personal faith and understanding of the gospel. Since we don't have a denominational affiliation, we spell that out in our bylaws. Insert commercial for the next go-round of the HBC distinctives class. It just finished last month, but it'll be along in another uh, few months, and you might want to come and check that out. Now, that idea of belonging to a local church and being publicly identified as such, began in the book of Acts. That's my point. You don't have a verse that says, sign the membership application. But the concept is all over the place. Keep track of people, care for people, administrate, supervise, organize, plan, make things work. And what we have before us in Acts 6 is one of the first visible steps in the development of what we call ecclesiology. There's your 25-cent word for the day. Ecclesiology is the word for the doctrine of the church. 
The fullness of that doctrine was revealed over the span of time from the book of Acts through the close of the New Testament. The bulk of ecclesiology was given through the Apostle Paul because he was the, the Apostle specially called to take the gospel uh, to the Jews and the Gentiles. And so it makes a lot of sense God revealed through him this phenomenal new entity called the church. So let's look at this infant church take first steps. And theologically speaking, ecclesiology is born. But you don't have a full-blown ecclesiology in Acts 6 or 7 or 8 or 28. It takes the rest of the New Testament. Now, here's an outline for all of chapter 6. I'm only going to get to the first two and a half points this morning. But here's what we're going to see. A need arises, leaders prioritize, leaders propose a plan, people are put forth, leaders pray and confirm, God keeps moving and Stephen rises up. This is ongoing in the history of the early church. But first, a need arises. As is generally the case in life, it was something of a crisis that provoked some creative thinking that led to something good. If you'd like a secular proverb version of this, necessity is the mother of invention. You need something, so you you invent something to fix it. A need surfaced in the form of a complaint. It was a legitimate complaint. And spirit-led people responded in a godly way. Chapter 6, verse 1. Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number... A complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. Now, a couple of things to pick out of there, innocent-looking little phrases. What's translated at this time is literally in these days. Uh, This is a record of a time in history. It's the regular passing of days. This was the ongoing day-by-day lives of the Christians in Jerusalem. They had a problem, a a growing problem. The word translated increasing, as in number where they were increasing in number, that could literally be translated multiplying. Following those numerical references that we've seen, the numbers could well have been 15,000 to 20,000. That's a lot of people to keep track of. Now, what's translated Hellenistic Jews is simply literally Hellenists. They were the ones from outside Palestine. Jerusalem and Judea, the region, Palestine, the, the, the area, if you will. And Jews were scattered all over the Roman Empire. That's called the diaspora. That's the Greek word for it. The dispersion. And those that didn't live near the mothership near the temple in Jerusalem, they were daily immersed in um, quite a bit different culture. Thanks to the spread of the Greek culture and Alexander the Great, a lot of them had a lot of Greek influence with them. God used Alexander the Great to spread the Greek culture and the Greek language to have the New Testament written in a language very, very precise and could be spread worldwide very quickly. God was sovereign in all of that. But there were these people who were more influenced by the Greek culture. Most of them had as their first language Koine Greek. 
the language of the New Testament. Now also, most of these people didn't have just one language. They may have, may have dealt in, in Greek, in, uh, in, in Latin, the Jews in Aramaic. There were many other things. You can see all those languages that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2. What's translated native Hebrews is literally just the Hebrews. They were the ones who did live in and around Jerusalem and Judea. Uh, their daily language was probably Aramaic the current dialect of, of Hebrew. And to them, the Hellenists were maybe a little suspect because of the cultural shades of differences. You know how it works when, when you meet someone who doesn't speak your language as fluently as you do. You can tell just from hearing them. They're not as smart as you are. Isn't that how you think? And so you talk to them more slowly and louder. louder. And it doesn't help a bit. Okay? There, there are things like that that are the natural human reactions. Well, the, the Hellenists who were there observed that their widows, the widows that w- were part of their families, were not receiving an adequate or equal or appropriate share of the food that was provided for the care of the most needy among the first Christians. Now, as I said, this incident is one of many baby steps in the development of the functioning of the church as the body of Christ. Now, it's quite interesting to me, just observe this this week, it really dawned on me, in the next to last letter from the Apostle Paul, the one that gave us the most information about ecclesiology, in the next-to-last chapter of the next-to-last book of his, he gives detailed instructions about what qualifies people for material and financial support from the church, and he primarily deals with widows as far as those who are needy. So the first step of the church functioning is actually finish being codified in the last step of the doctrine of ecclesiology. And would you notice also that this was going on in the daily serving of food? That shows this was part of ongoing ministry. This was not a one-off situation of crisis. This wasn't a complaint that, well... Last week at the potluck, some people got seconds before others got their first serving, and somebody got left out. By the way, that's a 21-century-old problem. Bring more food. The point is, a need arose. That's what led to the invention of a new idea, and it was a very good idea. The next part is the leaders prioritizing. We've seen in Acts chapter 2 and then again in chapter 4 and again in chapter 5, people were bringing their contributions, mainly in response to need, and some just in pure worship, and they always laid them at the feet of the apostles. Well, that makes sense. It was the apostles, clearly, whom God had set up as the leaders of this new thing. But that original group of 120 has grown more than 
a hundredfold. Okay, so just imagine Heritage Bible Church is here today. We already need two services. Imagine if instead of the 300 people we were, imagine if we were, oh, I know, say this fall, 30,000. That's the magnitude of the management problem that needed to be dealt with. It's like the difference between you operate your own home, you have your own family, uh, you know where the kids' bedrooms are, you try to put the same number of kids to bed each night, you, you, you keep track of them, you feed them, you pay the bills, you do all of that. Well, if imagine just in, in a matter of weeks or months, suddenly your home has to take care of several hundred people. That's the magnitude. A huge part of the testimony of the early church was how rigorously, relentlessly, daily they cared for one another. Jesus said before He went to the cross, they'll know you're My disciples if you have love for one another. That was happening. Now, remember this statement from immediately after the salvation of those first 3,000 souls, Acts 2.42, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, there were only 12 apostles until Paul was brought in. They were given revelation from God. Their teaching was crucial. It was foundational. Ephesians 2 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the, and the prophets. They diligently taught the ever-growing numbers of people in the temple. And it says they went from house to house as well. It wasn't all public proclamation. It was a lot of personal interaction. And so they needed to prioritize according to their abilities and their calling. Now, it's a very good thing to feed hungry people. Galatians 6, it says, don't grow weary in, in caring for each other and doing good deeds for each other. It's a very good thing for believers to share meals together. It's a very good thing to pay special attention to the needs of widows and orphans as a subcategory. But it's not possible to teach full-time, be devoted daily to prayers, and to reason with people about the gospel day in, day, day in and day out, and also to handle the hard work of distributing and serving food. So, chapter 6, verse 2. So, the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the Word of God. This is the apostles, the leaders, prioritizing. Those are the right priorities for the apostles. Again, as we see the fullest expression of life in the church fleshed out in the writings of the Apostle Paul, he relates the very same priorities for the men who followed the apostles and became the elders of the local churches. Again, that same chapter, 1 Timothy 5, he says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. You see the transition that we mentioned there from Jesus to His agents? And, and Jesus 
sent out the 12 two by two, then he sent out 72 by two. He was, he was talking about the, the spreading and the multiplying of the oversight of, uh, of the ministry, but especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching are to be considered worthy of double honor, which is financial support. So as the various parts of your body serve different functions, each one has to do the, same, do the thing that's designed to do. Same is true with the church. And the apostles set the pattern of prioritizing that is to be followed in every congregation. Now, I said we're going to go two and a half points. I'll nibble at the next one. A need arises and the leaders prioritize. Thirdly, the leaders propose a plan. What we're about to see is a New Testament application of the principle that was taught to Moses by his father-in-law, Jethro. It's recorded in Exodus 18. The idea is that the weight of responsibility of leading and judging wisely will crush any one person. And it was crushing Moses. His father-in-law counseled Moses to build a team, to do triage on the things that were coming to him, and to teach the team to handle the routine things so that only the most crucial matters could come to him. That's exactly what the twelve apostles did. When it came to the excellent ministry to widows, the excellent ministry of prayer, the excellent ministry of teaching and preaching the Word of God, the plan proposed by the twelve did not minimize any of those things. It did, they did not blow off the complaint. They handled it. And it also kept their priorities in place. So, verses 3 and 4. Therefore, brethren, select from among you these are the apostles speaking, seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now I realize fully that we have been devouring much longer sections recently in Acts. I want full credit for having dealt with 32 verses last week. And one time I did a whole chapter in Acts. But I don't want to hurry through this passage because there's going to be so many things here that will connect so directly to us. On our next visit to Acts, we're going to see how to apply these priorities and the same principles that the apostles applied and we'll explore how best to make them work in the ongoing life of Heritage Bible Church where we are members of one another. But I want you to see where this is headed. So I'm going to give you a preview of the rest of this chapter. We're going to see the standards standards set for determining who should be entrusted with any kind of oversight of uh, serving in the church. And then we'll see how it played out. I think the formula is membership plus leadership plus fellowship plus integrity with the right priorities equals powerful collective testimony. So verses 5 and 6. The statement found favor with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now we're going to see how God continued to multiply the number of Christians. We'll take a different look at... um, these extra special conversions of some priests and how one of the new leaders blossomed spectacularly. Look at verses 7 and 8. The Word of God kept on spreading. 
And the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. One chapter after they were trying to kill the apostles. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. Now he's not even an apostle. And yet God allowed him to do some of the signs of an apostle. Well, no surprise when that happened, the enemy of Christ formulated a new attack on this group. Verses 9 through 15. But some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, sorry Scott, freedmen, not freemen. Some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. Oh, don't they love doing that? They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard, them say, heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. Ooh, and chapter 7 is awesome. But we're not done with chapter 6. And let's pray. Our Father, thank You for this new life we have in Christ. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but You, you made us alive in Christ. That's all for Your glory. We thank You not only for our new life, we thank You for one another. We thank You for faithful leaders who through the centuries have made sure that this, that this glorious message of the gospel was passed down to us. We pray that You will continue to multiply the number of disciples even around here as we see in the book of Acts. Father, we pray that You will keep raising up leaders of, of good reputation full of the Spirit and of wisdom. I pray that You will place in every one of us the desire for greater service and greater um, ways to minister to one another and to see Your church built up for Your glory. In Jesus' name, Amen.